Have you been following the Chester Uyghur story? Remember the starved, rock-killing Netflix three-part series that we watched in the throes of the pandemic? Maybe you didn't, but perhaps you've heard that after 60 years in prison, 60 years, this guy named Chester Uyghur was finally released from jail. But his attorney, Mr. Uyghur himself, still want another hearing. They want the conviction overturned. They say there's DNA evidence that says that this man who was working at the Star Rock Lodge 60 years ago did not track and kill three women who were going for a hike at Star Rock State Park. It's really strange to think about the three women in clothes that looked more like what you would wear to church one day, just going for a stroll in the Star Rock trails, and that this guy would come upon them and all by himself without maybe a true motive, kill them. But he was convicted under unusual circumstances. He's free today. But his attorney and he want another hearing. His attorney is Andy Hale, and he joins us now on WGN. Andy, this is John. Are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Catch us up on that story. What else in summarizing this overall should we know? Well, there's there's so much new. I think you, you've got the gist of it. Um, three women go on a hike in uh, March of 1960. They're found two days later bludgeoned to death in a shallow cave. Chester Weger was a 21-year-old dishwasher at the Star Rock Lodge. Eight months later, he confessed to the crime. There was nothing linking him to the, to the horrible murders other than this confession. And he was convicted, spared the death penalty, which I think is interesting, and then spent 60-plus years in prison, got out on parole two years ago. He's going to turn 84 in another week. We are trying to prove his innocence. And in the last year, we have made tremendous progress in that fashion. Um, and you're right, there was a three-part docu-series on it uh, during the pandemic. It was on HBO called The Murders of Star Rock. Pardon me. At yeah. that time, I didn't know all the things I've learned since then. And we just filed a petition for post-conviction relief uh, with the court uh, last Friday that is 60 pages long, has 65 exhibits, and sets forth just an overwhelming amount of evidence pointing to Chester's innocence. I'll ask you about some of that in just a minute. But did he not also have a criminal past? Uh, I said no motive, and I don't know that a motive was ever clearly established, other than maybe theft that went bad. But he did have a sexual assault no. charge against him previously. <laughs> no. This, this, this has been used to kind of drag him through the mud, you know, back in the day and over the years. He has denied having anything to do with these two sexual assaults that occurred uh, a couple years before uh, the Starve Rock murders. He has denied that. Um, and that has been used consistently by the state to deny him parole. It's been consistently used by people over the years to try to kind of drag him through the mud. And for sake of argument, let's just say that he did. That does not prove uh, his guilt with the Starfrack murders. You know, it's a completely different crime. Three women had their heads and skulls bashed in. So the answer, though, is no. Um, okay, we'll pick it up here. Well, actually, we've still got some time, so let's just keep rolling on this. Um, he went to jail 
before he went to jail, obviously he's convicted, and the author of a book about this said that not only did he confess, but presented to each page of the confession, he initialed it. He signed it again. He said, yes, this is true. Yes, this is true. Yes, this is true. Why would he do that if that was not true? Well, that, that with all due respect, is just a very lazy, unpersuasive argument. Uh, in any case, uh, you know, I represent the Chicago police now. I've been doing it for 20 years. Confessions are always signed. They're always initialed. It has no indication of voluntariness. And in fact, if you're trying to get a false confession, that's exactly what you make sure you do. Hey, let's initial every page. Let's misspell a word and have you initial a correction. So it's, it's, it's such a silly argument. Um, if you stack that up, if that's all you got, and you stack it up against my 60-page petition, it's not even a debate. I understand the problem with false convictions. I think we're a lot more aware of that phenomenon these days than we used to be. So I'll take your point on that. I think the the, the big Can thing— Can I talk people... about some of the new evidence? That's where I'm going now. Because I, well, okay. I think the people think people were waiting for was this DNA test, which hopefully was going to exonerate him, at least from his standpoint. What do you know about that? Well, we submitted numerous items of evidence for DNA testing, several hairs, twine, cigarette butts. Uh, because the evidence was so old, we could only get a result on one of those pieces of evidence, which is a hair found on the glove of one of the women. Francis Murphy. It's the same finger where her fingertip got cut off. That hair is not Chester Weger. It is a male. Uh, we submitted it to the state database, DNA database. We did not get a hit, but we are going to try to do genealogy to find out who the contributor of that hair is. So in my opinion, that hair alone exonerates him because that's a hair from one of the killers. It wasn't one of the victims. It's a male hair. Um, we've got that combined with a whole host now of evidence from different sources that indicates that this was a mob hit. Uh, the women got hit, got killed by the Chicago mob uh, at the directions of one of the husbands. Which the family rejects and are upset by. Of course, as, as I understand but I had two different witnesses come forward, credible witnesses, to, to report that. We have a document from 1960 where a telephone operator overhears two brothers talking about uh, the kid who's got bloody overalls in the trunk of the car, and he should burn them. The Illinois State Police investigate that. They trace the calls of these two brothers. They do surveillance on the bar. They confront the guy with the fact that he's talking every day to a guy who's a known criminal. Um, I mean, it all, it's staggering. Uh, if you read my petition, which, I, you know, nobody has because I just filed it, it is staggering the amount of evidence pointing in that direction that all fits together like a jigsaw puzzle. Andy Hale's on the phone line, an attorney that's representing Chester Weger, out after six decades in prison for killing three suburban women at Starve Rock State Park. Um, but then what would the motivation be in that case? If this was a mob hit on these women, what was the purpose of that? Well, what the one woman says who came forward, she said her grandfather told her that one of the husbands wanted his wife killed. And in order to do that this way, they did it. They killed all three. And by doing it this way, 
it didn't look like a hit. You know, if this woman would have been killed, shot, walking up her driveway, you know, it's obviously an execution. Here, it, got look, it looked like it's just a random crime. So what her grandfather told her was he didn't know what this woman had done to make the husband so mad. But her grandfather told her that the husband was so mad he wanted his wife to pay. And if you look at the crime scene, the women were beaten to a pulp. And, you know, what's Chester Weger's motivation on his break on a botched robbery to not only kill these three ladies, but to bludgeon them repeatedly with blows? The crime scene is consistent with multiple attackers. The crime scene's consistent. I've got a forensic pathologist who says the weapon's probably a combination of baseball bat, tire iron. Um, these are heavy instruments that cause these injuries, not a camera, not binoculars. The law got discredited as the murder weapon before Chester even went to trial. The state knew the log wasn't their murder weapon. I could go on for hours. Well, pardon me, but just address that point, because that's what the other side said. That's what in part convicted him, that the robbery went bad. One of the women fought back. He hit the woman with a branch. Now she's either unconscious or killed, and now realizing he's got a problem on his hands, he has to kill all three of them in order to not have any witnesses to the crime. Right. So he's got to kill all three. Does he got to kill all three with 100 blows? Does he got to drag them into a cave and pull their clothes down? Is it possible that... Does he got to... Hold on. Does he got to cut off Mr. Murphy's fingertip? Does he got to do all those things? And here's the thing, John. This is the most important thing. There was an Illinois State Police crime lab meeting within days of the bodies being found. They reported that the blood on the log did not result from hitting. And then, get this, but after Chester confesses, before he goes to trial, they go out to St. Louis Canyon with that log, and they try to match it up to a tree. They can't do it. Hmm. That log was brought there by one of the killers, which is exactly what one of my witnesses said. And I only learned this because I just got documents that Steve Stout had apparently in his garage for 40 years that he donated to the LaSalle Historical Society that I got access to. I never saw this memo, how they couldn't match the log to the canyon. Uh, that's they fascinating. I've never heard that in the weapon. reporting. If, if, if it yeah, was a branch new. from a tree, take, take this branch and show us the tree that it came from. They know where the bodies were found. Presumably they were killed nearby. The branch should match a tree in the immediate area. They got an expert from the forestry department from Madison, Wisconsin, to go out to that canyon with that log, and they could not match it up. And one of the persons who reached out to me said, Smokey Rona, who was involved in planning this, brought a log with him when he met the guys from Chicago. That's exactly consistent with the log not being native to St. Louis Canyon. So the whole story that Chester Weger, oh, I'm going to pick up this log that's laying right here that came from this tree, was proven false before he even went to trial. And the state knew that. And they knew the blood on the log was not the result from hitting the women. I mean, it's all in my petition. It is, yeah, I'm sure you're stunned. Most people will because they don't know these new facts. Andy, hold on for one second. Let me pause and then just come back and answer one other or maybe two other questions sure. for me. And sure. one of them is this. One of the things that most amazed me in that three-part docu-series was the conduct of the state's attorney and some of the other officials who were able to capture the reward. 
I'm, oh. I'm, I'm stunned by that, even Good recollecting God. it. Chester Weger's attorney, Andy Hale, filed a petition to get the evidence looked at again. Chester Weger, six decades ago, the man convicted of the Starve Rock murders, three Chicago suburban women killed out at Starve Rock State Park in the western portion of the WGN radio listening area, not too far from Plate and Ottawa. And... It was interesting to me, Andy, in the series and in the reporting sense, just briefly describe for us the relationship that the chief of police, the attorney, the state's attorney had with the reward money. This is one of the most shocking parts of the case, John. State's attorney who, which was weird, uh, for some reason he was investigating the case. Okay, that's not normal. State's attorney's job is to prosecute and to seek justice, not to investigate. But in any event, State's Attorney Harlan Warren, his two LaSalle County deputies, Dummett and Hess, and the polygraph examiner, Stephen Kindig, who, by the way, was friends with one of the husbands, uh, and by the way, you know, uh, you know, knew one of the husbands, uh, and of the killed women, one yeah. of the guys on that call with the telephone operator, okay? Um, they all shared in the reward $38,000. In today's money, I think it's over 300000 I mean, to think that these guys shared in the reward money, the state's attorney, the deputies, and the polygraph examiner, it is absolutely outrageous. In my petition, I have an affidavit from a polygraph expert who talks about how repugnant and, and just inappropriate and proper that is. Uh, it's, it's just hard to imagine. Right. The, conflict of, it, the conflicts of interest would be then you would convict anybody for the money. You would go ahead and say, yeah, this guy did this or that. We, he, he's available. He's, we, we can pin it on him. Now we get the money. But if that's the motivation for the state's attorney, well, then it's hard to imagine that he's doing his job impartially or accurately for the people of the county. I mean, I, I totally understand that. Um, so, it, it, yeah. What, oh happens, my God, I could what, happen, what happens next? Then? By the way, at the time, it was not illegal for them to receive that money. What happens? Well, now? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. If it, I don't know if it's technically illegal. It was improper. It was unethical. Uh, absolutely. Agreed. Back in the day, it was. Agreed. Absolutely. Agreed. It all Agreed. goes to their motive and bias. But what happens now is we have filed our petition with uh, the court in Ottawa. Uh, the judge now has to decide if he's going to docket it. I hope that he will. I think that he will. And ultimately, uh, we'd like to get to the stage, uh, the third stage of post-conviction proceedings, where we would get the chance to have an evidentiary hearing. I would put on all my evidence, all the witnesses, all the documents I have, all the forensic results I have. We would put that on. The state would be allowed to make whatever arguments they wanted to make. And then the court would decide, you know, uh, whether he thinks we've met our burden, which I think we will. And I'm looking forward to getting to that point in the proceedings. If he's deemed wrongly convicted, then is there remuneration? Yeah, if he's deemed wrongly convicted, we would, the first step would, we would seek a certificate of innocence from the state. And you can get state compensation for that. Um, you know, there's a cap on it, um, but that would be the first step. But what this man wants is, John, he wants his reputation back. He wants people to know he's not a triple murderer. He has lived his whole life in prison and under the outrageous, incredible burden of being known as a mass murderer. 
That's the goal he wants. And I'm just so amazed and thrilled he's still alive. And I am determined to get this done for him. And we are going to get there. Okay, Andy, it's a fascinating story. I appreciate your following it, and I appreciate your visiting with us today. Let's uh, continue this conversation down the road. Anytime. Thanks. Attorney Andy Hale representing Chester Weger.